Let me show you how it's done. Well, well, welcome. You are listening to The Drop, Drop, Drop. podcast on business tech and influence. I am one half of The Drop, Tam Danier, head of strategy. I lead insights and product. I focus on tech, in particular, solutions that solve real-world problems. And I'm here with... My name is B. Pagels Minor. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. I have been a product manager for over a decade at some of the world's most well-respected companies like Sprout Social, Apple, and Netflix. I've led teams that built important parts of the App Store, launched games at Netflix, built listening at Sprout Social. All in all, my DNA is fully being a product manager. Hi, everyone. We are so excited to be back this week with one of my favorite people, David Beasley. David and I met relatively recently in the last year. I was told about this really great opportunity as a Northwestern alumni called Purple Arch Ventures. Purple Arch Ventures is part of Alumni Ventures. It was declared the most active VC firm in the U.S. in 2020. And they have over a billion dollars in funds that they've, and they have invested in over a thousand different companies, which holy crap, how do you even keep up with that many companies? What's really great about David is David has more than 25 years of private investment experience and he's a Northwestern graduate. So for full transparency, I'm on the board of directors of Northwestern Alumni Association. So we have two very proud Wildcats on this, in this conversation, right? David, thank you so much for being here. We're so happy that you could be here. I really appreciate you. Also, another cool thing, as soon as I emailed David, he literally responded back very quickly. How often do people who is as busy as he is do things like that? So let's get started. David, you founded Purple Arch Ventures in 2017. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to found it? Absolutely. First of all, go Cats. Thank you for having me. You've been an, an incredible addition to our investment committee, by the way. And my only reluctance to come on the show with you, what was the name? As a former wide receiver who played for our team, <laughs> you never want to focus on the drops. You want to focus on the catches. Yes. Uh, anyway, I will uh, I will start with the purple pass and work my way to the purple present. And uh, as you mentioned, I'm a two-time Wildcat, both journalism degrees. And actually, right out of Medill's Magazine Publishing Master's Program, I started a financial newsletter targeting high net worth investors and financial services professionals, teaching and advising them how to invest in alternative investment strategies, including venture capital. I ran that business for two years and successfully exited. That was my foray into the world of finance and entrepreneurship, but obviously my heart navigated to the dark side. I love the financial side of the business. And after my startup, I spent almost three years managing money professionally, uh, then created my own firm in 2002. We launched as an independent sponsor. We quickly evolved into a boutique merchant bank with three practice areas, lower middle market M&A, private placements, and venture capital. But by the end of 2016, the only thing I was having any fun doing was investing in venture stage businesses and trying to leverage my own social capital and intellectual capital to advance the initiatives of the companies we invested in to effectuate positive outcomes for me and the syndicate of investors who invested alongside me. Opportunistically, for both of us, I think, it was at the end of 2016 when this scrappy startup just outside of Boston came calling on me, touting this franchising model for alumni venture investing. I was very skeptical at first, especially since I was managing a lot more money than they were at that time. So I had my analyst uh, look back at 10 years um, venture deals focused on the top 500 deals being done each annual cycle. And what he found 
quickly convinced me that this wasn't a good idea. It was a great idea. Methodology is important here. So excuse me for getting into the weeds for, for just a moment. We looked at the top 50 firms, including Benchmark, Sequoia, NEA, Kleiner, Andreessen, Google, Benrock, Bessemer, Excel, Lightspeed, uh, and specifically looked at deals that more than one of these top firms invested in. Through that overlap, a pattern emerged. 98.5% of the time, and let me repeat that number since it is st uh, statistically significant, 98.5% of the time we found a founder, executive, board member, angel investor, or the lead partner in the venture firm leading the round of financing attended one of our alumni ventures schools. Pretty remarkable. That's when I knew alumni ventures, again, wasn't a good idea. It was a fantastic idea that I had to be a part of. Fast forward to today, Purple Arch is now raising its sixth fund at what I would describe as the most opportune time since I started being a venture firm with dry powder. We're seeing significant down rounds, new rounds favorably repriced and old rounds reopening for companies we were previously shut out of. In other words, the capital's back in charge for the first time in 10 years. We get to be value investors with VC upside potential, which is pretty compelling for the foreseeable future. I really connect with that idea. Well, there's cohorts of schools who typically have really great, successful alumni afterwards, right? I really do think there's a fundamental correlation between the, the ways in which the people around you shape you and sharpen your focus and help you grow as a person. It's one of the reasons I chose Northwestern. I, I remember I had a lot of different choices. I just remember looking at the college and they were talking so much about their focus on on-hand experience. They, their engineering program, for instance, you actually go into engineering companies and you do engineering work. If you're an actor, you go in and you do acting work. And so I really think that's a really great fundamental policy. And in fact, my kid's only nine months old, but I already told him, I was like, you're going to go to a school that actually shows you how to do this work because that's a differentiator between, I think, really successful people and other people. So the actual definition of dry powder for folks who are listening, it's cash or marketable securities that are low risk and highly liquid and convertible to cash. So anytime we mention a term here, especially a financial term, I always recommend checking out Investopedia. Investopedia is a great place to go to get some a quick definition of what um, one of these terms might be. And in fact, Investopedia is bookmarked on my laptop because I reference it all the time. Yeah, that wasn't intended to be a, a jargon nomenclature. We just, we have fresh capital and we're seeing deals with clear eyes. And until and unless we see an opportunity that matches a very discerning criteria, we are, we're passing. Some of the rounds we're seeing are still being priced at 2021 levels. And that is just of no interest to us. We are looking for value plays. We're putting a premium on profitability versus a premium on the potential for growth. You're saying this to say, this last point you made, we're looking at startups with more scrutiny. We're looking at profitability and not necessarily growth. And that's a different kind of thesis or mode of operation than previous years. Can you expound on that a little bit? Yeah, I think market conditions warrant it. And when I say capital's back in charge, I, I really mean it. Whereas when I started, founders were getting multiple term sheets, including from corporate venture firms, hedge funds that were bidding over the top of everyone. And they were taking the, the least diluted term sheet instead of the firm that could essentially add the most amount of value. 
So we're being discerning, uh, meaning we're, we're looking for founders that are looking for strategics like us that can add value beyond their check size. Our focus and our thesis revolves uh, generally around investing in the future economy, if I had to sum it up. We are deliberately diversified across stage, industry, geography, and lead investor, but that might be too broad for your audience. So let me be more specific without giving away any trade secrets. In general, we like companies solving heart problems. If they're successful, they can build value for all the stakeholders, including investors, if we're lucky enough to get into those opportunities. We also like category creators, defining a net new problem and creating a net new solution. With existing categories, the economics have already been established. And even if you build a better solution, the price has already been set. With a new category, those economics haven't been established. Setting the price becomes the driver. Don't get me wrong. We, we do like disruption too, especially if there's non-consensus, meaning the price hasn't been bid up yet. If everyone agrees it's a good idea, valuations get inflated. And there's probably already a competitor in the space capturing market share. The trick is to find those deals before all that happens. Airbnb is probably a great example. Most thought that no one would let strangers stay in their homes, no matter what they were willing to pay. And th think about that for a second in exactly the way I described it, because that was their initial pitch. But VRBO, Holloway, and Airbnb certainly proved those naysayers wrong. And they were really the quintessential example of the sharing economy, uh, which brings up another great point about deals I like. Bill Gross, the legendary founder of Startup Studio, Idea Lab in California, did an extensive study and determined that timing was the number one driver of a startup's success. Don't be too early or too late. Launch in that Goldilocks zone and hit the market when it's ready to receive your value proposition. For Uber, Lyft, Airbnb, they launched when the economy was struggling. Sharing your excess and turning it into spendable dollars seemed like a great idea at the right time. I am personally also a sucker for marketplaces. I was an early investor and operator in a marketplace business and learned a lot of valuable lessons from that experience. To build a successful marketplace, for example, especially a two-sided one, at least one side of that equation needs demand that is beating a path to your door. Creating demand and selling both sides becomes difficult and incredibly expensive. But if you get it right, uh, I love the business model of aggregating buyers and sellers, especially in old antiquated business like chemicals, for example, and, and heavy equipment replacement parts, but also in, in really new asset classes like cryptocurrencies. And despite current market conditions, Coinbase is still probably the best recent example of how a marketplace can work successfully. And finally, I like entrepreneurial teams that have, you know, customer acquisition as part of their core DNA. I believe that companies that have an unfair advantage in acquiring and retaining customers will produce outsized returns. It's this maniacal focus, a deep appreciation for the process and exceptional talent that makes them stand out for me. I love the fact that you mentioned marketplace. The first half of my career has been in marketplaces and it really is, is one of the most interesting challenges. And I find also that people who can make it successful pretty much go into any industry afterwards and do, do really great work. And I think it's partially because you have to have that nimble balance and, and, and really be meeting the desires of a lot of different folks. And in fact, 
oftentimes marketplaces, it's not just two-sided. Sometimes it's three-sided because there's all these different mechanisms that make it, that have to exist in order for a marketplace to be successful. You've spoken a lot about just the, the theory behind Perforge Ventures, a little bit about your particular uh, methodology, but there's something very interesting about talking about the Alumni Ventures Network because, you know, to your point when you said earlier that y'all did that, you know, did the study and figured out that there's a, a large percentage of individuals, 95.8% of folks had all gone to a specific group of colleges. Can you tell us a little bit more about the network, its purpose, and why it's done so well in a relatively short period? Happy to be, and, and apologize in advance if this sounds a little bit like a commercial for alumni. I, I'm just so thrilled to be part of this organization. So part of our North Star and at its core, Alumni Ventures has made it venture investing accessible to accredited investors by leveraging affinity connections from alumni at top universities. We get to access great deals, which helps us assemble diversified portfolios, investing in 25 to 30 early growth and late stage companies for fun. In less than six years, we've become the third most active venture firm, according to 2021 statistics. And I think we will be the most active this year. And we're raising and deploying around 350 million per year, investing in 350 plus companies. And I think we're going to be the most active this year. Again, not because we are accelerating that number but because we're seeing everyone slowing down just a little bit more than we are. And I say this all with the fact that this is just the beginning for us. I think our key competitive advantage, which I think I may have hinted at early, is the 600,000 members of our community, 35,000 of those do bleed purple, by the way, B, who can help effectuate positive outcomes for the companies, I'm sorry, the portfolio companies that we've invested in. With this actively engaged group derived from our alma maters, we're likely one LinkedIn connection away from anyone our founders may want to meet. Alumni Ventures is truly the, the network-powered VC at its best, creating a virtuous circle of value for all of the relevant stakeholders. I, I think we're building something great here. I would love anyone that ultimately hears this and everyone who hears our message today to be a part of our story in some way, whether as an investor, a deal finder, an advisor, a fellow, or even an entrepreneur seeking capital, become an engaged member of our community that can help activate our companies to succeed. It's one of the things I think is, is interesting with, with me is that before I met David in um, the Purple Arch Ventures, I met other people who had been fellows and things like that for Purple Arch Ventures. And so, and then although they were Northwestern alumni, what I was really thought was really cool is the, the ability to transition, right? So that's one of the things that's also interesting about a lot of these new funds. There's a lot of folks, the opportunity to get access to this information and to start careers in this. So that's the other thing that I think is really cool. And in fact, this might be part of the answer to my next question for you. One of the things I'm always very curious about is that there's a lot of venture groups and funds out there. In fact, I think like just accidentally, I'm now part of capitalism. Just accidentally. Like I met one, they introduced me to someone else. And then I was just like, it just keeps making money. So I'm just going to say yes. Like I'm a, this is my yes year, essentially. Um, the one of the questions is you could be a part of a lot of these different groups. So why do you choose alumni vendors? Like what is the secret sauce here? that you couldn't have gotten somewhere else? It, it's actually a great question, B. And what, one of the fun things I get to do every day is collaborate with really smart people. 
in addition to the two other members of my team who also bleed purple and my investment committee, which you are, of course, a part of. My other colleagues running each of the other 17 alumni funds are all investing from the same playbook that we are. That puts 50 other investment professionals in the field and covering incredible opportunities we get to invest in as Purple Arch. Almost a third of our portfolio will be deals we cherry pick from the best of what we see from our sibling funds. So for a real world example, we just co-sponsored a deal with Blue Ivy, our fund for Yale alums. It's in the battery recycling space, an investment theme and thesis we've been researching for some time. They found a great team with great tech in a massive market. That's just one recent example of high quality deals being shared, but this happens every single day at Alumni Ventures, which I think is, for, for me, the primary reason I, ch I chose this firm and to build this fund within this organization and this broader group. David, with the proliferation of funding options for entrepreneurs, what's your pitch as to why VC funding is a value-add funding option? Thanks, Sam. So to be clear on our model, we... We typically don't lead deals, set market terms, or take board seats. Alumni Ventures operates exclusively as a co-investor. So I, I really want to address your question from two angles. The value we create at AV and the value Elite VC should create beyond their check size. And, and actually, maybe let's start right there. Andreessen Horowitz, A16Z is probably the premier VC on the planet right now, even after giving Adam Newman $350 million for his new venture to make this podcast. I think that just happened this week. They have roughly, you know, 500 employees and only 20% of them are there to find deals. The other 400 are there to help those companies be successful. Every VC needs to adopt this model of capital second, value at first. Capital is always the fungible component. Uh, second, lead investors almost always take a board seat. Founders need to see their board as their second leadership team and inspire them to remain a working board versus a recording board or a lame duck board that does nothing. As a working board, accountability matters and the best boards can back out the lens and see the forest through the trees. Most founders are too close to their businesses and focused on day-to-day -day critical management tasks as they should, but the board isn't. The board can drive intellectually honest discussions and debate. And as for co-investors and in strategic, we tend to earn our allocation by punching above our, our weight on activities that matter, like revenue producing customer introductions and filling in HR gaps as companies are scaling. In other words, founders should empower their VC partners to pay them to become a business development and recruiting arm for their business. Not sure other creative forms of finance can effectuate outcomes in that. I really love that answer for, for two reasons. One, I really love this idea that as a founder, you're trying to find great partners who are basically filling out the competencies that you don't currently have, or at least that's the way I take that because you don't have the HR jobs, you don't have all the business development connections and your VC should be able to provide that to you. Although the one thing I will say is that sometimes, you know, a VC will talk a big game, especially if it's a new space, it's like the metaverse. What VC knows exactly what the playbook is for, for metaverse? No one does. So as a founder, I do have to like delineate and say, is this person really understanding their limitations and not understanding their limitations? 
I think that's really, really important. Secondly, as a director on a few different boards, I cannot explain to you how, how, how significant your point is there about working boards versus boards that are just reporting or lame duck boards. In fact, every board that I've started off, off on, it started off as reporting boards. And I've been very proud of the fact that we've been able to slowly change them into working boards. And every single one of those organizations has become more successful because we are working boards. And so if that's one thing that you, you get from this podcast episode, other than the fact that Dave is awesome and Alumni Ventures is awesome and Purple Arch Ventures is awesome. And of course, Sam and I are awesome. What you should really get from that is it's inceptionally important. And, and even as an investor, it's inceptionally important to have active boards, really active working boards involved with the company, because that's going to be the, the, the strategic change for that company. And in fact, a lot of times when I go through and even applying for jobs, I would go through and look at who the board of directors were. And I would look at the types of things they were writing. I would look at the types of things that they were investing in. If it wasn't impressive, almost always I could tell, I was like, this company's going to be problematic. It's going to have lots of issues because they're just not going to be focusing on the right things. And so the, the, the working board, I think, is such a significant thing and it's such an important point that to be made here today. It also sounds like you're giving tips to entrepreneurs about what they should be looking at in a VC and how they should evaluate a potential VC. Is that fair to say? It, it, it's very fair. When, when VCs used to ask the question of whether or not a founder was coachable, that founder should be asking that VC if they know how to coach. <laughs> Being a former operator and all the thousands of questions and, and critical choices I'm making every single day. If you haven't been a founder in your prior life and just been a financial, you know, modeling sort of steely-eyed analyst in your prior to career, you may not know how to relate as well to to those founders. Oh my gosh. And that's actually one of Tam's thesis that, that this one of the reasons we started this podcast is this idea that there's such a wide swath of expertise amongst VCs, obviously Anderson Horowitz, alumni ventures. There's a lot of operators within those organizations. In addition to the folks who are looking for deals, our customers, for instance, they often have lots of funding, but then they don't have great partners to help them operationalize their dream. And, and you'll look at the VC and you're like, oh, that VC doesn't have anyone like that in this particular organization. And that's why, and that's why this company isn't being successful. Although on the flip side, Tam and I will always have work because of this. Um, so we can't complain too much. Pivoting a little bit, there's obviously, there's a little bit of the sky is falling energy going on right now. And so one of the things I really wanted to get your thoughts on is there's a huge theme that's going around that VC funding will be much slower moving forward than it has been. You know, do you really agree with that? And then like, why or why not? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to touch on some of the things I may have mentioned just prior, but in, in the later rounds, B, yes, for sure. You have hedge funds like KOTU and Tiger Global pulling back on VC and PE in general because they can find incredible opportunities in the public markets, which are far more liquid than venture stage deals. You also see corporate VCs pulling back as well, since this was a nice to have versus need to have for their businesses. And when profits shrink, it becomes harder to invest from your balance sheet. But we still see robust investing in the early stages. But even those rounds and valuations are being squeezed down, which is ultimately good for us, by the way, sitting in the seat of the venture capitalist, buying low and hopefully selling high in the future. Or, or to quote the Oracle of Omaha, Warren Buffett, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. Wise words for sure. 
And we are heeding them as we at Alumni Ventures are staying in market with our now. We are just being a lot more careful in our choices. If we don't see absolutely everything within the opportunity and love the deal and valuation, as I mentioned, we're going to pass because we, we know that the next deal that could match our criteria is right around the corner. I read an article recently that Warren Buffett was talking about the fact that he's excited about what's happening because he finally feels like he can deploy all of the, the funds that they've been basically swirling away over the past few years because the, the market has been so out of control. He didn't think there was a lot of value there. And so to your point, it seems like this is the perfect opportunity if you're someone who's been trying to figure out what this market look like. It's actually, this is the time. This is what you've been waiting for. You don't have to be as indecisive because finally these multiples are starting to make a little bit more sense. And again, something Tam and I talk about all the time is like how, like Newman's company, the $350 million investment makes him automatically a unicorn. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no proof that he knows how to successfully run a company. He's really great at ideas, generating energy around these ideas. But, you know, in terms of the nitty gritty of running fiscally responsible organization he does not know. So I'm not sure if I would give him $350 million. A16Z, hopefully they have a plan to put the right parameters around him so he can be very successful. Do you feel like we're on a market correction now? To B's point about multiples coming down and valuations coming down, you mentioned earlier when you see something that's valuated at 2021 levels, it's a red flag to you. Are we in a market correction? Absolutely, we are. And the best example I could give was one of our premium deals. And I say was, that's the operative word. We invested in a company called BlockFi one year ago at a valuation that was about 10 times uh, trailing 12 revenue, which we actually thought was under market. Coinbase, the best market predicate at the time, was trading at 85 times trailing 12 revenue. So we actually thought there was still significant upside. The market thought differently. Uh, they had actually um, set the price at about four times in, in this last round before ultimately the entire crypto market crashed and FTX came in and saved them. So that is an extreme example of what we're seeing across the board, Tam, not just in crypto, but in all things tech enabled, they're taking their terms from the market predicates that have some a 20% market correction. Others have seen a 90% market correction, which again, for me is good because I still have dry powder and a fresh fund to deploy in this environment. Honestly, as a, a rookie who only started really investing heavily last year, I was like, I got great timing. Thank goodness. But that is actually just as a larger thesis. And something that I want to mention, too, is that one of the things I love most about what's happening now is that it's a reminder that the fundamentals are the same no matter what you're doing, whether you're growing a business, whether you're doing investments. It takes time. It takes learning. And over time, things compound, right? There, there really aren't big swings that anyone can take, no matter how much money you have, that's going to just have 100 or 1,000x multiple in a year or five years. Like it's something that it's, it, you're going to have to, you know, it's going to take 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 or 50 years for you to really get that, that overall payout. And even though I like, so SoftBank is a mess in so many ways, I still love their 10,000 year plan. Like they understand that this is a long-term strategy. That's why they can have it. Although Tam and I both agree that maybe they should spend a little bit less and think a little bit harder about some of these ideas because some of this is a little crazy. But since the 10,000 year plan, 
They seem like they're going to be okay. Guys, can I just point it out? None of us will be here to call them out on whether they failed or not. True. This is what we call a sucker's bet. Like, you know, they used to do time capsules. We should just do a time capsule. One for if it works out and one if it doesn't work out and tell them where to, which one to do. Yeah. What benefit? To what benefit? Call them a liar? No, just like, no, I just want to be able to do like a Martin Lawrence, like, I told you so, like that type of, like, whatever response. David, let me ask you a serious question. David, if I came to you with a pitch deck and said, don't ask me about what's going to happen in the next 12 months, look at my 10,000 year plan and invest in the future, David, you would say what to me? Role play, please. I, I, I love this. No, I'm start, starting to feel relaxed. So this is great. <laughs> It would be challenging because I operate as as what what I would term a fiduciary uh, with a ten year life cycle fund with the ability to extend two years. I need to I need to get some return for my stakeholders with it within that time. Thank you. But not but not SoftBank. A thousand times that is what he's asking you to envision. Okay. <laughs> Tam and I are obviously operators. We're operators who have slowly started to learn and get the skill set to do other types of work. In fact, this podcast was partially a part of that sharpening tool, right? You know, if you can teach other people these concepts and be helpful to other people in those concepts, it often is a sign that you're ready to level up. And so that's one of the reasons that we were so gung-ho about doing this podcast. That point is something I mentioned earlier is that we're always curious about this. Like we're always curious about VCs and operators and those relationships in, in, in which they, they don't work well in ways in which they could work better. One of the things we think is that VCs have to utilize more operator expertise. Obviously, A16Z is a great example of an organ that's implemented this model, but many don't. And so I would love to hear what you think about that. I actually think the question can be broadened a little bit because I, I actually think there's several attribute, attributes that make a great VC. Alumni Ventures has a number of former operators at, in our firm as well, including myself. And that certainly helps connect with founders, as I mentioned before, most of whom you know are open to coaching and, and who better are also really empathetic, again, to the difficult and critical decisions being made every day by our fantastic founders. And this empathy is crucial to building a trusting relationship with them. In addition to being a former operator, though, I, I think there are other, you know, necessary qualities needed to be a great VC. I think having an easy but diligent underwriting process helps. No founder wants to be scrutinized incessantly. They want to complete their fundraise and move on to the business of running their company. Purple Arch and AV in general certainly thrive on that easy process. And and the few other things that I think make a great, great VC are, you know, supportive market conditions that, that always helps. Uh, like the conditions we're in right now, uh, thoughtful portfolio planning, a defined thesis and not accepting the status quo, which is a direct reflection of us since we are disrupting a, a business that invests in disruption. But for me, personally be in my own growth to becoming a great VC. I try to be a student of industries and markets and try to recognize things moving in and out of favor. What our limited partners or investors should look for in our team specifically is strong investment experience, of course, startup operating experience, as you mentioned, as well as a compelling investment strategy and a certain amount of diversification. 
investors and founders get all of that, you know, with Purple Arch and alumni ventures in general. So again, sorry for making that sound like a commercial, but but we're we're super disciplined and and have a rigorous process. And at this point for me, it's, it's about impact. And let, let me clarify that and give it some context. After being a part of a successful investment exit back in 2015, uh, it was time for me to start giving back to the alma mater that had given me so much. At that point, a few years ago, I joined the New Vention Advisory Board to help Northwestern University advance its experiential learning uh, entrepreneurial curriculum. I also am helping Kellogg in the Garage, which is our on-campus you know, student startup incubator, mentoring students, judging pitch competitions, you know, teaching students about venture, making sure I touched campus at least once per month. But it wasn't enough for me that in 2016, you know, I went to a few of our trustees and tried to resurrect the Wildcat Angels. I had a vision for a fund and a dedicated angel group that would invest in alum-led companies. Uh, if that sounds familiar, uh, but I couldn't get any traction with the university, uh, despite what I knew and conveyed to them about pent up demand. So I tabled my ambition until the opportunity for Purple Arch landed in my lap. And as I investigated the alumni ventures group, it, it seemed like the perfect platform for me to advance my initiatives and give, uh, and, and I'm sorry, in, in my desire to give back. So I coined the phrase with purpose, but for profit for our fund. I think what we're doing at Alumni Ventures can have an immense impact on the universities as a whole. I think what we're seeing is that successful entrepreneurs are becoming the new rock stars. Adam Newman, uh, probably the quintessential example. Uh, they're certainly influential in business, but also culture. So as we continue to invest in you know, alum-led companies that highlight their successes. I hope we become a beacon for not just more investment dollars in us, but for more donations to these schools as a whole. The same way donations can increase when a basketball team plays in the tournament or a football team goes to a bowl game, our entrepreneurs are a more relevant reflection of how great our universities are. And in my personal experience, the pride and affinity I feel when I read about our alums changing the world one company at a time is a mission I want to be a part of for as long as I can. And in the case of Purple Arch, our capital can be that catalyst, taking you know, a small part in helping create a successful entrepreneurial ecosystem, boosts the status of all of us who attended the, and hopefully inspires future alums who have that same affinity and want to you know, give back and pay it forward. That is the absolute like mission of alumni ventures at Purple Arch specifically. We want to deploy billions over the next 10 years and do thousands of alum-led startups. And I hope whoever lists, listens to this wants to join us uh, in that mission. Um, or what we drop here, that uh, universe will position themselves in the future to become the training ground for future entrepreneurs. I sure hope so. I, I think off the cuff, the entire curriculum inside of universities needs to change. You know, doing things more remotely, letting folks uh, dial into themes and lectures at Yale, which I think is spearheading this particular, uh, you know, lear learning from afar is, is where it goes. But I also think, you know, you're shadowing uh, others, you know, on the job. Uh, I think that becomes the future of the curriculum.
If you could give a younger person career advice to break into VC, what would it be? Take every meeting, build your network, you know, join our venture fellow venture core program, great practical experience. Uh, Number three, work at a startup at some point. Number four, become an angel investor and advisor. Uh, You can do it with just a few dollars in your time. Number five, you know, get smart on new things, meaning consume books, blog, podcasts like this. Make it your mission to gain knowledge every single day. Number six, become a scout for a BC firm. Uh, seven, read my white paper, uh, which is kind of a BC 101 in a two-part series that wasn't self-serving. I think it can actually be pretty beneficial for someone trying to break into VC. And then lastly, become an expert in something. Have a domain passion, but be flexible enough to join firms as an expert generalist. I also really appreciate you being someone who, you know, you can literally email and you'll actually respond to the email. For sure. B, B, thanks again for having me, Tam. Great to meet you. This was a lot of fun. And for everyone interested in learning more about Purple Arch and Alumni Ventures, you know, they should go to our website, which is av.vc. And to reach me, they can connect on LinkedIn or email me directly at uh, dbeasley at av.vc. Thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast. We love having you. We love your feedback. Please do connect with us across social media. We are the Drops Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and TikTok. And we also have a great email, thedropspodcast at gmail.com. You can send in any questions that you have, and we definitely would love to answer them on the podcast. Feel free to ask just about anything because we have experienced a ton of different things. Again, thank you so much for listening to the Drops Podcast.